How many of you in the audience have seen the movie The Tuskegee Airmen? Very good. There are a lot of you that haven't seen it. Blockbuster has it. You can rent a DVD or a VHS. And when you watch this movie, don't talk. Just listen. Because a lot of the, you have to listen to the words that are said to get the full impact of the movie. Okay, to set the tone for the military back in those days, in the 40s, I'd like to read something to you. Many officers in the Army, the majority of whom are from the South, believed in the stereotypes perpetuated by the Army War College studies of the Negro produced in the previous decade and the War College reports of 1936. The War College studies and reports were primarily unscientific surveys. I repeat, unscientific surveys and interviews of white officers who commanded Negro troops in World War I. According to the studies, Negro troops were childlike, careless, shiftless, irresponsible, secretive, superstitious, unmoral and untruthful, and more likely to be guilty of moral turpitude. The Negro soldier was also branded as a comic and emotionally unstable, musically inclined with good rhythm, and it fed loyal and complaint. Some heavy adjectives. Plus, we were nothing. They classified us with the ape and the baboon. So you can see what we're up against in the military. In my pocket here, I have some cards. The reason I have these cards, I was giving a talk one time, about a half hour talk, about 15 minutes into the talk, I had a senior moment. <laughs> so the talk lasted another minute or two and that was it. So tonight you're going to have to suffer through all these cards. Now, the Tuskegee experiment was designed to fail. That's right, designed to fail. There were a lot of obstacles, but there were three major obstacles. Number one, they put the flying school at Tuskegee, Alabama. That particular time, Tuskegee, Alabama was the most racist place in the United States. It was sport to go out on a Saturday night, pick up a black person, beat him, castrate him, hang him, or all of the above. The second major obstacle was <clears throat> they needed an airfield for us to get our basic and advanced training at. They didn't have one. So the War Department, today it's known as the Defense Department, but the War Department gave a contract to a black architectural firm called McKissick and McKissick. And they were supposed to design and build this airfield. And they gave them nine months to do it. They did it. So the second ob major obstacle was uh, shattered. The third obstacle was they said, <clears throat> if they graduate, we'll make them a pursuit squadron. A pursuit squadron is the most demanding flying there is. You have to master navigation, gunnery, and acrobatics. And we did. So we shot down all their major obstacles. Colonel Davis, who was a colonel then, now general, when he went through West Point, he ate by himself, he had a, a room by himself, he swam by himself, and no one talked to him. For four years, he had the silent treatment. Now, he had a goal, to graduate from West Point as a second lieutenant. What he did, 
I understand there are about 365 in his class. He was number 65. Very good man. During this period of time, the washout or failure rate for white cadets was running at 63%. Now, remember all those adjectives I gave you earlier? Well, the first class that went through Tuskegee, the washout rate was 40%. So they said there's something wrong with this equation. So they made sure they had a washout rate of 70% or higher. So it didn't have anything to do with our flying. That's why only 996 pilots graduated from Tuskegee. Now our training was different than the white cadets. Everything we did had to be perfect. Remember, they're trying to wash us out. So everything we did, they did was trying to wash us out. So everything we did had to be perfect. They said do a 360 degree turn at 2,000 feet, 140 miles an hour. That's what they meant, nothing more, nothing less. So they'll do a lazy eight, the top 2,000 and the bottom 1,000. That's what they meant. So you had to take into consideration gravity coming down and inertia going up and arrive at these figures. Come in for a landing, two main gear and tail gear, touch down on the numbers at the same time. So everything we did had to be perfect. That's why when the group went overseas, they were so good because of our training. But they were trying to wash us out. So they created monsters is what they did. <laughs> During World War II, <clears throat> pardon me. During World War II, when they sent troops overseas, they sent them in a convoy with a Navy escort. And when the 99th and all of its personnel went overseas, a single ship all by itself. Here again, maybe we'll get rid of the 99th. They went to North Africa. And the mission in North Africa was strafing and dive bombing. And they were very good at that. While they were doing this, a bad report was sent to Washington. Uh, bad attitude, poor formation flying, <clears throat> not being able to find the targets or secondary targets. And as it went up through the chain of command, each commander tacked on his two cents and finally got to Washington. And if you those of you who saw the movie remember, they talked about this performance of the 99th. And Colonel Davis gave his rebuttal to the, this performance. And then that's when the 99th uh, got the, and the 332nd got the mission to escort bombers. Now, one thing that helped the uh, 332nd get the mission to escort bombers was over Anzio. In two days, they shot down 25 aircraft. 13 one day and 12 the next day. That's a whole squadron. And the Germans respected the 332nd fighter group. They respected and feared the 332nd. Now the white pilots respected and feared the Luftwaffe. And the Luftwaffe respected and feared the 332nd. Now those of you who saw the movie, they talked about a mission over Berlin. And the captain in the movie wanted the 332nd to uh, escort the bombers. And they said, we can't. It's because of logistics. Well, the logistics were that they did not have enough large fuel tanks to fly from their base, escort the bombers up over Berlin and back. Well, Major Blair, who did live in Denver, he got some airmen or some enlisted people together in a flatbed, went by over to another P-51 base and said, I'd like to have some tanks, large tanks for the P-51s. 
They said, we don't have any. Put in your order. When the tanks come in uh, tomorrow, we will fill your order, maybe. Well, Major Blair went back to the base, got another flatbed. Yeah, now he has two flatbeds. He went out to the spur that came from the main track into this base, crossed the tracks with one of the flatbeds and waited. And when the train came along, they took over the engine, or the uh, engineer took him over, and they said, we want to get X number of tanks off the train. They did, and they said, okay, you can go now. So they took the, the uh, tanks to the base, loaded them on the aircraft. So then the uh, 332nd was able to fly this mission up to Berlin. And that particular mission, the Germans put up 22 jets, and the 332nd shot down three and damaged two others. In 1945, in September of 1945, I was slated to go to Okinawa and escort B-29s from Okinawa into Japan. The latter part of August, they dropped the A-bomb, so I wasn't able to make it. And before they broke our group up in 1949, they had a weapons meet. Colonel Stewart will talk about that. When they broke our group up in 1949, I went overseas in July of 1949. And I went to Masao Air Force Base in the northern part of Honshu. Prior to me going there, they sent my records, 201 file they called it. Lieutenant Drummond, who was also in the 99th, we both went to the same squadron, our same group, I should say. But before we got there, like I said, they sent our records. And the base commander called all the pilots in to the base theater, and he said, we have two inward pilots coming to the 49th fighter group, and they will be assigned to one of the squadrons. Well, Lieutenant Drummond and I reported into the commander. We had a little chit-chat. He said, what do you want us to call you? It's a military outfit now. What do you want us to call you? I said, well, I'm a first lieutenant. Eddie Drummond's a second lieutenant. How about Lieutenant Harvey and Lieutenant Drummond? <laughs> he said, okay. But then he made a mistake. He said, we have three fighter squadrons on the base, two P-51 squadrons and an F-80 squadron. Which squadron do you want to go to? I immediately said F-80. So they put us both in the F-80 squadron. Now, at that time, they didn't have any jet trainers. All they had was the AT-6 that we used in it for advanced training. And what they also used it for instrument training for the jet pilots and for the P-51 pilots. You'd get in the back seat, pull the hood up, you couldn't see out, so all you could look at were your instruments in the cockpit. So what they had us do, I got in the back seat, the pilot from the 9th Fighter Squadron was in the front seat, he got clearance for takeoff, taxi out, line up on the runway, after, with the brakes on, then he said, okay, you have it. So I would take the aircraft, throttle up, down the runway, take off, gear up, flaps up, prop pitch back, throttle back, all those things we had to do, fly around, do the maneuvers he wanted me to do. Then we contacted ground control approach to come in for a landing. They would vector me in for a landing. I'd touch down on the runway, all on instruments, and after I touched down, the pilot up in the front would take over the aircraft. I had two flights like that. In the meantime, 
going to ground school on the F-80 to learn about the systems of the aircraft. If you can fly one aircraft, you can fly any aircraft. The only difference is the emergency procedures and the systems. So we learned the systems, then I took off. Now, they said that you will wave goodbye on takeoff, because this controls are very sensitive, because I'd been flying a P-47 where you have to push and pull. In this aircraft, you just a little pressure and you're, it, it goes. They said, you will wave goodbye on takeoff. I said, not me, I'm too good. I waved goodbye on takeoff. <laughs> Only one flight, the very first one, that was it. In, in, uh, when the colonel briefed the pilots at the base theater that day and told them we were coming to be assigned to one of the squadrons, the pilots, they told us this later on themselves, they told the colonel and said, no way are we going to fly with them, no way. Anyway, we reported into the squadron. We flew, we took off, we soloed in the F-80. They saw we could fly, flew quite a few missions. They saw we could fly, and they started flying with us. And 14 months later, they made me a flight commander. And that's just before we went to Korea. And these same pilots who said they weren't going to fly with me, I was scheduling them to fly missions in Korea. Good turnaround. But they were very good pilots, very good guys. Most of them were from the South. And like they said, you know, they were prejudiced, but they saw we were good. We were good. In fact, we were better than they were. In Korea, I, as uh, the general said, I got 126 missions flying the F-80 in support of the ground troops. <clears throat> the only close call I had, I was strafing a town in uh, South Korea. It was a schoolhouse, but there were soldiers in the schoolhouse, not children. And when I pulled up off the, my strafing run, I banked to the left, and I heard a thump. I looked around and looked out, and my right tip tank was missing. Well, the pilot behind me, coming in behind me, when we got back to Japan, stated that a ball of fire the size of a basketball had come up and hit my tank and took it off. Now, had I been flying straight and level, I would have gotten in the wing and... That would have been it. Now, the aircraft I've flown was the <clears throat> PT-19, BT-13, AT-6, P-40, P-47, P-51, F-80, T-33, F-86A, E, F, and D, F-94, F-89, and F-102. They're, only, they're the only aircraft I've flown. <laughs> I retired in uh, May of 1949 and uh, 1965. And before I retired, I knew I was going to have to work. So I was out looking for a job. United ran an, air, uh, ran an ad in the newspaper. So I applied for this job. Uh, they had a representative at a local hotel. So I went and sat down, talked to the representative. We talked for quite a while. He says, you know what? You have everything we're looking for, but you're too old. The age cutoff is 35. I was 41. And so I said, OK. Three years ago, I was talking to, I belong to a, uh, an organization called the Dalians. They're pilots from World War I through today. 
And uh, I was talking to one of the pilots, and he said, I got a job at United in 1965. He said there was no age cutoff. Then the light went on. They just didn't want me. However, today it's different. Today, regardless of who you are, male, female, what race, as long as you're qualified, you're considered. So things are much better today. Now, like I said, I retired in May 1949, and I interviewed with the uh, United. Then I interviewed with Oscar Mayer. I retired at Chuax in Madison, Wisconsin, and that was the home office for Oscar Mayer, and that was when it was owned by the Mayer family. So I interviewed with everybody just shy of Oscar himself. And I interviewed for a week. And uh, the president of the company, I interviewed with him, he had me sit behind his desk in his chair, and he interviewed, interviewed me from the front. And uh, I told him, yes, I will be back. If I'm hired, I will be back, and I will take your job. Anyway, they hired me. They said, when can you go to work? I said, well, I retire, I retire uh, the 31st of May. I'd like a week off. They said, okay, report the 1st of June. I mean the 7th of June. So I reported the 7th of June at the, at the plant. I was supposed to be there three months, going through each department from slaughter right on through all the departments, see how the products are made. Then they were going to ship me out as a salesman. Well, one month into this program, they needed a salesman in uh, New Jersey, northern New Jersey. So they shipped me out to northern New Jersey as a salesman. I was there for three years. Then I went to Detroit as a district manager. I was there for a year and a half. Then I went to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to the plant as an assistant sales manager. I was there for three years. Then I went to Denver as a distribution center manager. And in Denver, I had 10 salesmen, two district managers, two secretaries, and three cooler people working for me. And uh, I had a four-state region. I was the only black. No problems. In fact, my whole military career and my civilian career, I didn't have any problems whatsoever. I felt very fortunate. Some of the guys weren't as fortunate as I was. Then I retired from Oscar Mayer in 1980, February 1980, and the people say, well, what do you do now? I said, well, I just do this, and I travel. And my wife loves to travel with me. She's here with me tonight. And we just travel, have a good time, enjoy life. That's the way I see it. We're on the downhill. I'm on the downhill grade. I can't say she's on the downhill. <laughs> like I say, I'm enjoying life. So with that, I'll turn it over to Colonel Stewart. Thank you, Jim. Can you hear me okay? Good. All righty. Uh, first, I want to thank General Metcalf and his staff for inviting us down here. It's been quite a trip. They took us out today to the museum. Uh, personally, it's the first time I've been to the uh, Air Force Museum here, and I was just overwhelmed with the work that's being done out there and with the aircraft that they have uh, for you to view out there. Uh, I want to thank you very much, and uh, I also wanted to say that uh, our delivery this evening is we decided to break it into three parts, and the first part being uh, 
Colonel Harvey, who will discuss the early, or who has discussed the early days of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, then myself, who will talk about the middle years and mainly the fighter gunnery event that the 332nd participated in in May of 1949. And lastly, but not least, will be Major, Sarge, Major uh, Sergeant Johnson, who will talk about the later years of integration as far as the uh, Air Force uh, is concerned. Uh, we'd like to say also that the, at the end of our talks, we'd be happy to entertain any questions that you might have. Uh, I noticed, and after you made the introduction, General, that uh, three of our Tuskegee Airmen came in. I'd like to introduce them with your permission. Thank you. And the first is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Macon, who was a prisoner of war in Stalag Luft III back in World War II. And uh, here he is, Richard Macon. Number two is one of our fairly new Tuskegee Airmen. He did not serve during the war, but he's done a yeoman's job as far as the Tuskegee Airmen organization is concerned. That's Dr. Brian Smith, who I'd like to introduce, who is also the past president of the National Association. Brian. The last person I want to introduce is a person that I have the utmost respect for and has been one of these people who sits in the background and does so many great things, but you never hear his name mentioned or he never gets any of the accolades uh, or the uh, uh, congratulations and recognition that I think he should have. I'm going to go ahead and say something now that I know he's not going to like at all, but I have to say it because it's in my heart. I must get it out. About three years ago, this gentleman, in his studies, or let me say first that he's a nationally known historian of aviation. Uh, he's been enamored by the history of the Tuskegee Airmen. About three years ago, he felt as though enough had not been said or done for the Tuskegee Airmen in showing appreciation and what they did for our country. And what he decided to do is he went to a friend of his, Senator Levin, and said, Senator Levin, I'd like to uh, suggest that maybe we should introduce a bill in Congress, or if you could introduce a bill in Congress for the Congressional Medal for the Tuskegee Airmen. Senator Levin said, yes, I will go ahead and do this. He asked this gentleman if he would get him the data necessary to go ahead and show what reasons there should be for giving such a uh, uh, recognition to the Tuskegee Airmen. This gentleman went out and he did the full job in giving Senator Levin all of that information. Just recently, the Senate has signed the bill offering the Congressional Medal to the Tuskegee Airmen and also the House has signed that bill, but the person who actually instigated this thing has not given the, given the credit yet that I think he's been deserved for it. Mr. Philip Handelman, would you please stand up for it? One thing that uh, Colonel uh, 
Harvey mentioned, there's a little bit of a contention as far as the numbers of graduates that uh, came out of Tuskegee, and I think he gave you the number of 992, and I have a number of 932. I think my number is correct. <laughs> and I got one up on you there because five of those, something you didn't know, five of those 932 were Haitian. And these were P, uh, uh, citizens of Haiti who came and flew down to Tuskegee. Uh, they got the prescribed course in. Of course, they were Haitian citizens, and they could not be given a commission in the United States Air Force. But they did get their wings, and they went back and took their uh, knowledge back to the, uh, their homeland of Haiti, which actually leaves a number of uh, 928 black American pilots, or 927 black American pilots, who got their wings down at uh, Tuskegee, Alabama. I came in the service in 1943, and I did go overseas in World War II, after which I came back to the state, stayed into the service until very early 1950, January 1950, got out of the service and followed a civilian career from there on. But I guess the highlight of the time, the seven years or six years and nine months that I was in the service, was the 1949 United States fighter gunnery meet that was given at Las Vegas, Nevada. Since the early 30s, there has been an annual or biannual fighter gunnery meet competition among fighter groups uh, in this country up until World War II. At World War II, this competition was suspended. And then later on, in 1949, the newly formed United States Air Force, which had prior to that time been the United States Army Air Corps, the United States Air Force, the commanding general decided that he would like to reactivate that competition among the fighter groups. As a result, he asked that three pilots be selected from each fighter group in the country to compete at a shootout in the area of Las Vegas, Nevada, actually Frenchman Flats, which is about uh, 40 miles or 30 miles uh, northeast uh, of uh, Las Vegas. In the 332nd fighter group, which is the Tuskegee Airmen, by the way, something that was not said by uh, uh, Colonel Harvey at the time, this name, Tuskegee Airmen, it's a newly found name. There was no such a name until about 1972. A gentleman by the name of Charles Francis wrote a book about the exploits of the black American pilots in the military. And for want of a name for this book, he decided since just about all of these pilots trained in Tuskegee Army Airfield that he would call it the Tuskegee Airmen. That's how that name came about in 1972, and it reached its acme of popularity a few years ago when the HBO film came out, The Tuskegee Airmen. So everybody knows these guys at the Tuskegee Airmen, but prior to that, they were pilots who came, graduated from Tuskegee Army Airfield, and uh, they were better known probably as a 332nd fighter group among the cognoscenti, the 332nd fighter group, or Red Tails. 
And there again, a lot of people have a story about these red tails. Well, why did they paint your tails red? Well, the fact is, every aircraft in the war, and certainly in the 15th Air Force that we were in, had markings, identification, to tell what group they were in visually. And each of the fighter groups had a distinctive marking on their tails to tell what group they belonged to. Uh, it so happens that the 332nd or the Tuskegee Airmen had red tails. The 325th fighter group had a checkerboard tail. The 52nd fighter group had a yellow tail. The 31st fighter group had a candy stripe tail. So all of them had uh, uh, distinctive markings. Of course, the awfulest thing that could have happened was that if they had painted our tails yellow, then there would have been a big, <laughs> a big fight there. So we were red tails and, and, and certainly proud of it. Anyway, getting back to the, getting back to the 1949 fighter gunnery meet and the Tuskegee Airmen, three pilots were selected after a, a um, inter-squadron, intra-squadron competition. Uh, of the pilots within the 332nd. Three pilots were selected to go to the fighter meet. And the same thing happened with each of the other fighter groups in the country. Within those groups, three pilots were selected to go out to the fighter gunnery meet. All in all, 12 groups went out to uh, compete in this group. There was a little problem that came up. Is half of them were jets and half of them were propeller-driven craft. It was felt that they did not want the propeller-driven craft to compete with the jets at the time, not because of the different type of propulsion unit, but because the jets were not equipped to fire rockets. So within the propeller-driven class, we, the 3 to 32nd, competed with five other fighter groups there six groups competing all together, and the competition was to be gunnery, high-altitude gunnery at 20,000 feet, uh, medium-altitude gunnery at 10,000 feet, rocketry, skip bombing, dive bombing, and panel strafing. The contest started on May 2nd of 1949 and concluded on May 12th of 1949. After all of the statistics were in, the 332nd came out handily as the winners of that contest. It was quite a joy to us because, uh, well, I guess to put it this way, and I said it once before in a talk that I gave, look, look at this college over here in Xenia. Uh, uh, What's the name of the college over there? It's Wilberforce. Um, and let's say that all of a sudden Wilberforce started playing some fantastic football and somebody said, you know what's going to happen? Wilberforce is going to duel it out with Notre Dame. I mean, that's just about how it is. So the 332nd, the underdogs, are going to go ahead and duel it out with the rest of the Air Force there. And that's, that's the way we looked at it, I guess. And it made us very happy to think that, uh, not that we had any doubt as far as uh, our abilities were concerned, but at least uh, it was shown to the public that our abilities were just as good or on par 
with anyone else. And that, that made us very proud. And I'm sure it made the black community very proud also. I know going out to the meet, uh, uh, it was quite exciting. And, and, and well, actually, uh, about uh, a year ago, uh, I started flying again. I got the bug and started flying again. And only because uh, there are three motor gliders that uh, are owned by the uh, Detroit branch uh, of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen. And I decided to go and uh, get my commercial license and the uh, gliders there. But uh, in doing so, it's like an old retread with really worn out tires, you know, going trying to get some new tires there. And I was having a difficult time in uh, two areas, and that was with my communications. That's the method of communicating with the tower now and the, 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 the procedures you have to go through with the communications. I, I just wasn't, wasn't up to it. And uh, uh, the other thing that I had a problem with was the rules and regulations they had as far as the operations not of the aircraft is concerned, but operational limitations as far as the type of weather you can fly in and, you know, that type of thing and what you can fly over. And they had these things called, uh, called uh, what are they, control zones? What are they? Uh, no, well, the, the big circles, the blue circles and on the maps that you can't fly over them. The air spaces, that's what they have now. <laughs> And what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to act as ignorant as possible so I can go ahead and give you uh, an idea of what it felt like in flying out to Las Vegas in our P-47s. Captain Temple, the third member of our team, our leader at the time, who unfortunately is deceased, died a couple of years ago. But we were flying from Lockburn out there, and we got out to... Uh, we got out to the uplands um, uh, out west there, and... I noticed that we were flying at a constant altimeter setting of 10,000 feet, but even though I was at 10,000 feet, the ground kept coming up to us. <laughs> anyway, we found ourselves, to make a long story short, down in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> what a, what a thrill. And to go along in the Grand Canyon, and I'm looking up at these people who are standing up on these vistas, up on the cannon, they're looking up at them like this, and they're waving down at us, and we're flying right along there. Well, if I were to do that today to show you how things have changed, I would lose my license to fly, and I'd, I'd never get it back again. That's a highly restricted area now, and you, you can't do that. But uh, that's just one of the things that I wanted to say tonight. We'll have more to say, and we want to talk about not just the three phases of the talks, but also some of our own personal experiences that we'll always remember and will thrill us. And I'd just like to mention two more, that's all. One, I was a real hot pilot when I graduated from flying school. Nobody could tell me a thing. I had been transferred over to a field called uh, Walterboro, South Carolina, to take training in a P-47. Well. We would get assigned an altitude. If I wasn't flying with somebody else in a formation or something like that, I'd be assigned an altitude, maybe 20 or 1,000 feet or 22,000 feet over in some sector away from the field. And very boring sometimes because all I was doing was getting in, in flying time. But nobody dare come into that sector because that sector belonged to me. 
I was the baddest thing that there was in that sector there. And if another plane comes in there, that's their rump. Anyway, what happens one day? I'm circling around in this sector, and here comes another P-47 invading my territory. Same plane that I was flying, same kind of plane. So immediately I said, I'm going to attack. So the idea is in playing in the air like us kids did in those planes like that, we'd get into a Luffberry, we'd get into a dogfight, and since the guns on the plane are fixed in the wing, you have to turn the plane to turn the guns just like you'd aim the guns. And the idea is to get on the other person's tail to shoot them down. That person, the idea is to get you off of their tail by trying to turn tighter than you or outmaneuver you. Well, I turned into this person, and this person turned into me like this. And the next thing I know, this person is on my tail. I can't believe it. How did this person do this? So I straightened out, rocked my wings, and I acknowledged defeat. So I headed back home, and this plane started heading in the same direction I was. So I pulled into the traffic pattern. This person pulled into the traffic pattern, too. I landed, this person landed. I taxied up to the revetment, this person taxied up to the revetment. I got up in the seat there and took my helmet off and threw it down. This person got up in their seat, took their helmet off, and this flaming red hair fell down around her shoulders. I had just gotten my butt beat by a woman. She was a woman's auxiliary air force. Whack, is it? And uh, yes, she was a whack. A wasp. Wasp, that's what it was. Wasp. Woman's auxiliary service pilot. And, uh, you know, I laugh sometime now, but there was a certain humility I gained from that. <laughs> And the humility being not just the woman there, but the humility being that the wasps, if you study their history and you can go to the internet and do that, it's almost like you're reading the story of the Tuskegee Airmen, almost as if you were. They had about the same numbers when I talk about that 900 and some numbers. And they had a problem with recognition, just like the Tuskegee Airmen had. And, you know, I always have to say this because, you know, I, I think here's a group that did a tremendous job and uh, they did not get the appreciation that even we have now as Tuskegee Airmen for, for what they did. The, the last thing I would like to say as far as my personal experience is concerned is I've always been a person that likes to sit in the back and watch the panorama in front of me. If I'm sitting in front, everything is behind me. I don't know what's going on. I like to see what's going on, so I like to sit in the back. And I didn't mind at all when I first went into combat to fly number four in the last flight, which is tail end Charlie. Didn't mind at all because, let me tell you what I saw. One day I was sitting in the cockpit and we were getting ready to take off. And bombers, who we would eventually catch up to because we were much faster than they, 
were passing overhead, just waves of them and waves of them and waves of them and waves of them. And later I found out the numbers would be something like 900 and some bombers. And finally I saw some fighters going from the other fields taking off. And I think the 332nd, I think we were the last group to take off. Not only were we the last group to take off, but I was in the last squadron to take off. Not only was I in the last squadron to take off, I was the last man to take off. But anyway, we climbed, we climbed, we climbed, heading over into the enemy territory there. And as we gained altitude, we were getting into a temperature zone where we started giving out these streamers that you see the airlines give out, this condensation trail. Well, we got up to a point in altitude there where I saw a sight that very few people will ever have chance to see and probably will never see again because they're not going to put up massive bombers like they did at the time and massive fighters. 900 and some bombers, 400 and some fighters, four engines on each bomber throwing out these vapor trails. 900 and some bombers times four engines and each engine on the 400 and some fighters throwing out these vapor trails and they painted a ribbon across the blue sky was just something that leaves you awestruck. And I called it America Standing Tall. It was just a grand and glorious sight that I remember. Thank you very much. Chief's responsibilities are, or some of the responsibilities, quite a few of you. But I'll tell you something, if you were a pilot, you would know, you would know all about a crew chief. Because remember him talking about those tanks that had to be put on at night so they could go to Berlin the next day? Those were crew chiefs putting those tanks on. Sometimes they worked all night depending on the flag or whatever the order is for your squadron to do. I was in the 99th Fighter Squadron, and uh, we were like a family. I don't know if you can picture a bunch of GIs from all over the country getting together and men and blending into something like a family, but we were not what the newspaper describe black African-American young people to be. We were professionals. In fact, we were so proud of our pilots, we'd work from kin to kin to make sure that they were going to be safe. Nobody, not even them, want to go up and shoot someone on the ground. And we definitely don't want to lose them because of our negligence. We were professionals. And I think that with uh, a leader like Colonel Davis, uh, we tried to mentor him. We knew all the time what he wanted us to do as far as uh, discipline, responsibility, and professionalism. We 
were those professionals. Now, during the, during the uh, shootout that they mentioned, I was one of the crew chiefs. My aircraft, Colonel Harvey flew it, but it was my aircraft <laughs> that was in the meet. And uh, it did real well, real well. In fact, uh, I'm so proud of them. We, uh, I th we went to Florida, first of all, to practice. And from there, we went to Las Vegas. Remember, Colonel Stewart mentioned down in the Grand Canyon? Well, the mechanics and all the support people flew in a C-47 to Las Vegas, down in the canyon. <laughs> yeah, they, they, we, we, we flew down in the canyon, looking up at the rim. It's quite a flight. But altogether, prejudice was there. It's, it's always there. In fact, if any of you in here know someone who's racially prejudiced, and if you don't do anything about it, you're just as bad as they are. That's what Jim Chappie James said. He was the first black Jim in the Air Force. And I believe it. I believe that. You know, we have a great country here. We have what we like to tell everybody what's so great about us. But you know, a chain is no stronger than its weakest link. When we get up and hear the national anthem, salute and hold our heart with our hand, we don't, we don't think about how we may have impressed people or each other. You can't be strong if you're going to be weak in your socialization with other races and especially when you are prejudiced against race, races and color. Now, I'm sure some of you have questions you'd like to ask us. Being a mechanic, I, I, can, I can answer a lot of questions, but don't ask me any hard ones. <laughs> I can answer a lot of questions. Well, may I, Buford, uh, uh, may I ask you, you were among the group that uh, uh, first went out and went into an integrated air force. How did, how were you treated? Uh, just how did you enjoy it? And what were your problems? Good question. Uh, six mechanics left Lockburn on integration transfers. Seven of us in all, but one, one of the guys was a, an administration specialist, a master sergeant. I was a staff sergeant. In fact, there were three staff sergeants and two, two tech sergeants and one master sergeant. We went to Japan. And, well, before we went to Japan, we went to Hamilton Field to catch a boat, ship to Japan. <laughs> and uh, while we were there waiting for our uh, transfer, the commander there said, well, you boys need something to do. I want you to clean up the base. Clean up the base? 
we all we all first three graders now. We're sergeants. We don't we don't do that anymore. So we wrote a letter to Washington, and about two or three days later, we were on the boat. <laughs> we were we were on the boat, but uh, we went to Japan, and uh, when we got when we arrived there, we found out later that the commander at the base where we were to be stationed, which was Itazuki, Fukuoka, on the lower island, I had told all the people in an assembly that we were coming. Somehow, they get the word around, like, I think Colonel Harvey's people told them they were coming. Uh, when we got there on the train, uh, we got out, we saw these GIs waiting on us, you know, guy want to carry my bag. This was really too much. I couldn't understand. What's this all about? But anyway, they were really nice people, really nice, because the commander had said we were coming, we were going to integrate, and it wasn't going to be any problems. There weren't any problems. And I got to thinking, that's the same thing uh, President Truman said. The Air Force is going to integrate, and there's not going to be any problem. Now, if one man can do that and say that, what, why was it so many problems so long? Why wasn't it earlier? Why didn't we do this earlier? But that's neither here nor there. We uh, came into the squadron, and uh, they had P-51s. Now, I just came from a P-47 squadron, ones that won the country. Here's a P-51, but it's a hangar queen. You know, if you know what a hangar queen is? That's the aircraft that has been cannibalized to just left, just, just the bare minimums left on it. They gave it to me. Okay, give me a lemon, I'll make lemonade. I, I, I took the, catalog, the parts catalog, I sat down and ordered everything I needed. And eventually started coming in. And I started replacing what had been removed. Now, that's a no-no in the Air Force today. Once you take something, you have to go through a lot of paperwork to remove a part because it may be something removed that no one knows about but you. You can't do the cannibalization anymore like that. But anyway, in those days, if you needed something, you'd go get, get it off the hangar queen. So I got this airplane ready for flight, cleaned it up. It had been in the hangar, dusty. And... Uh, it paid off. The first jet that came in our squadron, they gave it to me. The first jet. I am the first African-American crew chief on a jet aircraft in a combat zone. Okay? So, that to me uh, shows that, hey, this racial prejudice thing is just about gone. Then, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Jim Vandenberg. The air base is named after him. He came to our base and promoted everybody in our squadron. I said, my goodness, this is good. It just gets better all the time. <laughs> it's getting better all the time. But anyway, uh, some of you are probably wondering, uh, if we had any problems, none that 
as uh, worth mentioning. And if we did have, they were not our problems. They were the problems of the person who was carrying them around. <laughs>